You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to this briefing of the Advisory Committee to the Congressional Internet Caucus. Thank you for joining us today. We're here today to discuss the European Union's right to be forgotten. My name is Michael Kubianda, and I'll be standing in for our Executive Director, Tim Lorden, today. But before we get started, I'd like to uh, take time to thank the co-chairs of the Congressional Internet Caucus um, for hosting uh, this briefing in conjunction of the Advisory Committee and this entire series of uh, briefings of the uh, Advisory Committee, namely uh, Congressman Bob Goodlatte, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, Senator Patrick Leahy, and Senator John Thune. This series is a great platform to debate and discuss Internet policy issues. So privacy experts and regulators have been discussing the so-called right to be forgotten for several years now. In May, the European Court of Justice reached a decision that many say found a right to be forgotten within the existing European Data Protection Directive. The bottom line is that search engines can now be asked to remove links to certain websites from their search results. We have a distinguished panel here to tell us what this all means for us as Internet users and for the Internet as a whole. So now I'd like to introduce our panelists very quickly. Our first panelist is uh, Mike Godwin, who is a senior policy advisor which, with Internews, which is an NGO focused on strengthening local news coverage worldwide. Um, he was also the uh, former general counsel to the parent organization of Wikipedia, which I think will be uh, interesting and relevant here. Uh, next, we have Emma Lanzo from the Center for Democracy and Technology, where she runs the uh, she is the director of CDT's project on free expression. Our next panelist is David Hoffman, who is the director of security policy and global privacy officer of Intel. Our next panelist is Rob Pegararo, who is a columnist with uh, Yahoo Tech, and um, many of us have followed his writing for, for several years here in Washington on tech issues. And then uh, finally, we have Joe Jerome, who is policy counsel with the Future of Privacy Forum. So we're very fortunate that we have a distinguished journalist here today, um, and I, what I'd like to do is have Rob um, uh, kick us off with a nice plain English summary of the European uh, Court of Justice decision and give us a little context of um, what's going on in Europe. Then we can dive into the public policy implications. So, Rob? Glad to do that as I think the token non-lawyer on this panel. Uh, first, a little disclaimer. I write for Yahoo Tech on a freelance contract. I don't set policy at Yahoo. Uh, most often I find out what the company is up to, what the company is up to as the rest of you do by reading Marissa Meyer's tweets. That said... Uh, as I read the court's ruling, it basically walks down a few steps that, in isolation, you could say make sense. First of all, they determine that Google acts as a data processor. They don't just take this data and show it without editing, which I think is true. Search is not this algorithmically pure operation where no humans ever attend to it. They decided that it has a legal presence in the EU. It's an establishment. It does business there. Fair enough. The, the EU found that they decided long ago that citizens have a right to have incorrect data removed or corrected, which sounds like what the rights you have with uh, credit bureaus in the U.S. Therefore, the, the court decided that if you are not a public figure, which they don't really define too well, you have the right to petition a search engine to have incorrect, irrelevant, or um, what was the other standard? Out of date, inadequate, irrelevant, or no longer relevant search results removed, not shown in response to queries for your name. And um, since then, a few things have happened. A whole lot of people have taken Google up on this result. Other search engines, Yahoo, Bing, and so on, are also covered by this. Uh, Google told the EU they've received about 91,000 requests for links to not be shown in response to name searches. Uh, they said about 53% of those requests were granted. 15% they wanted more info, and 32% they said, sorry, can't help you. Uh, and there's been, not all these requests have been on the up and up. Some of them, in some cases, this letter Google filed cited uh, people wanting links to coverage of crimes they committed as a teenager's removed. These people forgot to say they were recently convicted of the same crimes as an adult. Uh, and there were some cases where journalists wanted links to pieces they wrote for former employers removed from search results, which... Seems like a strange request for a journalist to make. So anyways, that's where we stand. 
Would anyone like to uh, add to or uh, amplify Rob's uh, summary? Go ahead. Yeah, just one thing. I, I would say that I think that's a, a, an excellent description. I think there's one important factor we need to consider uh, in addition, which is that the court actually was not creating this standard that the processing of personal data had to be uh, adequate and relevant and not excessive. Uh, instead, that provision existed in the legislation that they were specifically being asked to interpret for the Spanish High Court. So that uh, clear language has existed since the mid-90s. It's in the 9546 directive. This court was referred questions from the Spanish High Court and asked, can you give us your interpretation under the European law how certain issues should be interpreted? They came back with, in my opinion, a very narrow determination based on the facts that they were given of the clear language within that directive. Now, that doesn't mean that that clear language doesn't have substantial and profound public policy implications, particularly in the area of free expression. But I think we have to separate a bit what was the court trying to do versus what now do policymakers need to do now that we recognize that some of this language has existed since the mid-'90s. I can, I can add a little bit to that, and, and let, me, let me see if I can uh, do it very quickly. Um, it's true that the court's uh, interpretation of the, of the EU privacy directive is not outrageous. It's, there's, there are a few outrageous aspects about it, but it's not overall outrageous. Uh, the, the difficulty is that the underlying directive language is quite broad, and the reason it's broad is that it's written – uh, as the uh, Advocate General commented in his advisory opinion, uh, which was not followed by the European Court of Justice, uh, it, it, it's, it's that the, uh, it was written in the, pre, the directive was written in the pre-Google era. So what it was thought, what was thought, what the, what, what the EU thought they were doing was creating a privacy framework in which the major entities being regulated were essentially private databases, the equivalents, the European equivalents of Equifax or other credit reporting databases here in the United States, plus maybe a reaction to uh, the ending of, you know, national security states like uh, East Germany, which made a fetish out of monitoring citizens. So there's this notion that there were these entities that were non-transparent that needed to be brought under the rule of law. Uh, and they were either commercial entities or they were former state entities. But what you have instead is the Internet revolution, which suddenly empowered everybody both to seek information in new ways and to create information in new ways. And that is actually what Google and the other search engines and the explosion of web content and the explosion of blog content and, and social media have really been about, which is the immense democratization of the ability to uh, in the language of 1948's uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the, the right not merely to, to express your opinion freely, but in that language specifically to seek and to impart information, which is something that we all have the power to do now that 20 years ago we did not all have the power to do. So the Advocate General, and I'll just briefly touch on this, and I know Michael will maybe want to bring it up again, but the Advocate General, in his advisory opinion, advised the court, the European Court of Justice, to go the other way. Uh, on the, just because the world had really changed a fundamentally democratizing way, thanks to search engines and other innovations. Uh, why the ECJ went the way it did in a way that penalizes Google is something that we may discuss here. I have something. Just to, to underscore um, what, what Mike's talking about, I think it's important to look at, you know, what was the, what the question the, the court was answering here um, in talking about this particular set of personal information about um, the man who brought the case. And they, they looked at both, um, or, or they considered, you know, the, the newspaper that had originally written the article um, that contained the information about him uh, and their posting of that online and said that, you know, this information was still lawfully posted by the newspaper online. They didn't say that this was information that, you know, should be taken down at the source, um, which I think is the right outcome, and I was glad to see them do that. But then going the next step and saying that still – um, a search engine might have an obligation not to link to that information. Essentially, what the court has concluded is that uh, it could be the case that there is true 
publicly posted information that is lawfully posted online, and yet it still might be unlawful to link to that. And that is a real change in how we think about information that's available on the public web. Um, that is not something that we've really had to consider before in thinking of different ways to structure and link to information online. And I think that's one of the big motivators in thinking about why is this decision so unsettling to so many people who care about keeping a free and open web. It's because this is calling into question some very basic underpinnings um, of, of the web, the idea that you can link to information, and if it's lawfully posted, it's lawful to, to link and access it. This is an important thing to keep in mind. I know a couple of commenters on my Yahoo Tech piece got lost on this. We're not talking about what Google does to create information of its own. This is not about its ad tracking or its behavioral profiling or all it knows about me through Google now. This is stuff that other people put on the web that's going to be there even if it vanishes from Google's index altogether. So I guess I just wanted to add that I, I feel like the really important thing about this decision is, that, is it kicks off a conversation, and it's a conversation that's going to be continuing. Um, this isn't, this isn't even, a, even though the ECJ is the high court in Europe and this is effectively like a Supreme Court decision that has set the law of the land, um, the, the, uh, the European Parliament is already engaged in conversations about a, a new data protection regulation, which could clarify and expand on this. I mean, we, we need to understand that this, this, this directive is from the 90s, and again, it's before, you know, the Internet really came into bloom. And as we're seeing in the United States, on both sides of the Atlantic, these laws, if they're not necessarily out of date, they're being strained. Um, and there's an opportunity in Europe if, if, if organizations and industry and policymakers are, are truly outraged by this decision to engage them in conversation and to sort of clarify where, what this right to be forgotten or, or what sort of data protection principles we want to see happen um, will be put into the new regulation, which is still an ongoing process in Europe. And just, I just want to add one thing to build on what Joe and, and Rob said. If, if you read through the opinion, which is a long opinion, if you read through it from A to Z, one of the things that becomes clear is that the court is wrestling with what is it that a search engine actually does. Is the search engine just an information intermediary that provides links to content that's out there, or is it doing something more for an individual that's doing a search query? Is it actually making a de its own determination of relevance? Is it telling you what it thinks is most relevant for the information that should come back as the results of that search by going out and not only using their technology to go scan uh, web pages over the, uh, over the entire Internet, but also then to sell advertising and to pair that advertising to the search term and to the results. So I, I think if the advertising feature of Google had not been involved here, the case likely would have come out differently since that was the major reason why the court cited that there was an establishment over the actual provision of the search results. And the other thing that's fascinating is really what the court is saying is that in this individual instance where they came back with, uh, Google came back with search results, which was 16-year-old data about what in essence a tax lien uh, for uh, real estate, they're saying, you did a bad job, Google, of determining results that were actually relevant to a query of what was just the individual's name. So that creates all sorts of implications of makes a little bit sense why they're trying to apply it here, but it creates these concerns of who's in the best position to determine how good a job Google is going to do of providing relevant responses to search inquiries. Let me just add a little bit to that. I, I agree with David that, you know, the, the European Court of Justice was wrestling with an issue of, of what Google does. Uh, they got thrown. They got penned. It was a terrible wrestling outcome for the European Court of Justice. Uh, but what, what, it's very hard to find an intellectually coherent argument that distinguishes what Google does as an advertising-based revenue general, generator and what the newspapers, which at least in this particular case, were spared from the ruling do, which is try to target their advertising to readers. Um, to, just to follow up on that uh, point, um, let's talk a little bit about the implications of this um, in terms of um, – both uh, companies that uh, put data on the Internet, um, not just search engines, uh, but also on Internet users. Could you uh, go into why exactly um, this is a concern or, or maybe why the concerns might be overstated? Well, and I think this goes back to the, the points that you were making about um, relevance. I, 
One of the big questions that's come up in as Google and other search engines are looking to implement this decision is how transparent can they be about the fact that they are changing the list of search results that they otherwise would have provided to a user um, because a third party has has requested that they take out a link. Um, I think one of the complicated questions here um, that the court was sort of wrestling with in uh, in the opinion is that you know this is not just a question about the relationship between the data subject and the search engine. Um, there are at least two other parties involved in um, in this in, a, in providing a search query. There's the actual user of the search engine who's saying, I want to find information about this term. And then there are the actual content hosts, the people who have posted the articles, posted the information, um, run the websites that Google is linking to. And in really focusing in just on the relationship between um, the data subject and Google, I think there was not as much consideration of those other two interests where you really start to see um, the free expression issues raised. And now that was because the, the court was actually constrained by the, the Data Protection Directive itself in not thinking of, um, of you know, the user providing the search term as a, an entity to consider in this case. But when an individual is actually using a search engine to try to find information, they've got some basic idea of what they expect the search engine to return. They think that they're going to return information that the search engine, through whatever algorithm it's using, has decided is relevant. Um, and if that decision of relevance then gets um, affected by third parties being able to uh, say, okay, you might think this is the most important link about me, but I disagree, um, then you start kind of shifting, is the search engine acting as an information retrieval system for one user, or is it acting as a reputation management system for the person who's the subject of the query? Uh, and that's not something that I think is, um, that a, a typical searcher is expecting. You know, if you want to find out what somebody says um, is the most important thing about themselves, you go to their LinkedIn profile, or you go to some other, you know, you go to their own website. But if you're looking for a, you know, a not, <laughs> not personal assessment of, um, of what's relevant about that person, then you're going to, to search engines. Yeah, I, I think that's an, an excellent comment. Uh, and what I would say is I think there are aspects of that where everyone believes that the, the, uh, the sky is just cloudy in Europe and that we don't, ha we don't have a potential storm here in the U.S. But if you take a look at the recent report that came out of the Federal Trade Commission on data brokers, they're concerned about exactly the same thing. They talk quite a bit about that we've had concerns around people search databases for 40 years and what the privacy implications of those are for individuals. And so the concept now that any inf all information about you that you've either provided or others have said about you is now available and accessible at any time by anyone in the world remarkably changes the relationship between the individual and the collective democratic society. We need to understand exactly what does it mean to have all of that information available. The European uh, directive was aimed at least partially at trying to say, look, there should be some limits to that. And I think we've done the same thing here in the United States. They actually, in the directive, borrowed from some concepts that we originated in the 1970s, particularly around the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but in many other areas where we've said, here are some individual pieces of information that we think actually shouldn't be accessible after a certain period of time. So in the, this particular piece of data, largely the Fair Credit Reporting Act would have said 16-year-old tax lien data, well, we're, we think it should be aged out after about seven years and shouldn't be used anymore for a number of purposes. There's a lot of other uh, areas where we would also say, look, here's information, let's say, take criminal convictions of minors. We're going to expunge that after a certain period of time because we actually just don't think that that should be used anymore. How are we going to wrestle with this with the technology of where we're headed? That's, I think, a really important policy. I want to jump in here because Dave knows that we disagree about how to, how to compare this to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. As you know, the, the credit agencies, Equifax and the others, uh, gather data privately and then they distribute it to subscribers. It's not really primarily an advertising-based entity. They have special data that they don't share with everybody. What the search engines do is they're not even producing this data primarily. What they're doing is providing indexed links 
that they try to steer towards relevant results for individual searchers. And their model really is advertising, so they're in a way much more like newspapers than like Equifax. This is my view. Uh, but having said that, uh, even if you thought uh, uh, it was worthwhile to age out old uh, you know, uh, financial records, you know, because you've, you've, you've spent 10 years or seven years with a clean record. And I think that's a fine idea, and I support the Fair Credit Reporting Act. The fact is, uh, that wasn't aged out of the original information in this case in the uh, uh, European Court of Justice. The, the actual newspaper content is still there. And in fact, now if you look up the right to be forgotten in Wikipedia or in a search engine, you will eventually lead to References to this case, which will lead you to the data about the guy who was seeking to have the data removed. And you will find when you read to the end that the newspaper was excluded from the decision. And you'll find the name of the newspaper. So you can actually go to the newspaper, look in their search box, find his name, and still find the same content. So whatever that is, that's not like Equifax removing older than 70-year-old data, you know, from your credit report. This is Inconsistent. It's illogical. It makes no sense, except possibly it makes political sense in the sense that the European Court of Justice may have found it more politically acceptable. This is controversial, and I'm not asserting that this is true. But they may have found it easier just to penalize Google rather than penalize Google plus the newspapers, which would at least have been an intellectually consistent decision, even though, like Emma, I would have been unhappy if the newspapers had been censored. So let me pull out a couple of contradictions in that. I'm pretty much with Mike on this. Now, one is this whole exemption for news-gathering purposes, journalistic purposes. In the EU, a lot of newspapers think that Google News is competition. They want Google to pay a snippet tax for reproducing excerpts of their stories. Google News also does not have ads on it. So should that have been exempt from this ruling? And the other part is this whole definition of public figures and the right to know. Google's uh, letter to the EU makes a lot of good points about this, that it's a lot of work. They can't count on people to tell the truth. So how do you determine if someone is not a public figure, is, is not likely to be one? You have to do some research. It occurs to me that for Google to protect the privacy of EU citizens and fairly process the results, it will have to assemble a really large database <laughs> about what they have all done in their lives and what they might do later on. Well, Rob, I haven't done a great job of winning you over uh, yet, but I'm going to keep trying. So uh, I, I, first I would say Google News wasn't implicated in the facts here that the court was deciding. So the court it would have had to have been going out and making their own policy determinations to de determine how they would rule if this, we were talking about Google News instead of just a search query request. Uh, and I think if you're looking at the language of the directive, and if you're looking at how does this side with the overall concept of free expression, in Europe they've been wrestling with this for a long time. Along with the directive, they actually have uh, the Convention on Hum European Convention on Human Rights, which actually has two different articles. Article 8 covers uh, privacy and a right, to a right to a private life, and Article 10 covers free expression, and there's actually a number of cases that wrestle with how do we optimize for both of these values? How do we optimize for providing a private personal life while also providing for free expression? And that, uh, those cases actually articulate a set of criteria that could be used to make that determination. A number of the cases actually come down on the side of free expression. And one, so one of the things that's interesting to me, if you look at a case like uh, Axel Springer v. Germany is a great case to look at for this, is if Google actually went to the European Court of Human Rights instead of the European Court of Justice and filed this saying their human right of being able to provide the information and their uh, is uh, uh, being restrained and it interferes with Article 10, where would that court come out in balancing all, uh, all of these different rights? I actually think, my opinion, that if they're looking at 16-year-old financial data and given the criteria that they've articulated and one of them being is it a contribution to a debate of general interest? I think they'll probably come out in the same place. As the European Court of Justice, that's a fairly controversial statement, but I think there's a good basis for it. So I just want to say, I think, I think there's a lot of unknown implications from this case. I agree with David. I think it, it was a very much a narrow decision, but it opens a lot of different questions. And we can spend the next hour debating what exactly those questions and what the implications are for the United States. 
Um, but so in my role at the Future of Privacy Forum, we're all about advancing like practical business practices um, around data privacy. Um, so I, our initial impulse was, oh, geez, this is going to be really complicated. But it, it is now the law. So I think we, we, we should actually sort of discuss how we're going to implement this. What can we do moving forward? And I think it's pretty obvious, certainly from a European perspective, that we simply need more tools uh, to how to manage our reputation and our data online. Um, reputation management's already been bubbled up as a term once in this discussion. And we really need more of that. And I think... It, Depending on your perspective, I think Google's doing a, a decent enough job trying to muddle through the implications of this decision. But I think it really behooves entrepreneurs in the United States to sort of figure out new ways to give tools. I mean, let's be blunt here. The, the Europeans are very skeptical of American approaches to privacy. They're, as Mike would say, fair, I think sort of hostile to what Google does. Um, so that said, we need to start figuring out ways to address those concerns. And I think one thing to do that is to give users more tools. Um, I think a distinctly American approach and something our organization is interested in is how about instead of a right to f forget, you have a, a right to reply. And that's something that's easy, easy enough to implement and has worked in other various legal regimes that, that we have in this country. Um, and there's really nothing stopping um, people who have bad things. I mean, we all have things on the Internet now that we probably would like to get rid of or, it, or have forgotten about. Um, I always think about the fact that I still have a bad review on eBay from 1999. Um, but I also have, under that bad review, a response that tries to give my explanation for why the, the, someone gave me a bad review. And I think we need our Internet companies to think long and hard about better ways to do that for users. I have this entrepreneurial idea that I kind of want to bounce off you, which is that I'm a lawyer who's interested in both free, free expression and, and privacy rights, and what I want to do is start an online database. It's going to be advertising funded. The online database will be of uh, European court decisions having to do with the right to be forgotten. And I want to make sure, I'm not going to add a lot of content to it, but I certainly will try to optimize the results for anybody who queries my database. Um, so uh, how, what do I do? Do I get to operate in Europe? What do you think? Well, I, I think clearly, I mean, there's a public interest exception to that. Like, let's, let's be clear. You, if, I think you I'm can do sure that. There is a public interest exception to that it, because what happens is you have the Streisand effect, right? Sure. Which is that everybody who successfully wins a case in the European Court of Justice suddenly is subject to another discussion in, about the fact that they won the case. By the way, this lawyer, Costeja uh, 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 Gonzalez, I have to say, it's still the case that he, his lien comes up now in, in uh, Google and other search engine results. But he's now famous for having beaten Google, so that's actually pretty good for a lawyer. Uh, he lucked out, I think. Um, just to follow up on that discussion, um, you know, David, if we if we grant that, um, you know, people have a right to uh, maybe obscure um, information that's no longer relevant, are we just playing a game of like data whack-a-mole here? Um, if the data's still on on the internet in so many places, and you're just removing one link, uh, how exactly do we get to that point? I think that's a, a fantastic point, and what I would say is in this conversation, you're starting to see this separate into what I think are three categories. The strict legal analysis of what happened in the opinion, the policy implications that people now realize for what the language is that's in the directive, and then the third category, which your question brings up, which is how in the world would we operationalize this in an efficient and an effective way? How would, how would Google, other search engines, data brokers, other entities um, implement this? I've advanced an idea that I think should continue to have discussion is what if the search engines came together and got approval from governments here in the U.S. and Europe and other places that it was okay to come together and said, look, we don't want to be in the situation of having to make all of these decisions about what's excessive, what's adequate, what's irrelevant. We want there to be a centralized body that has the right participation that can make that kind of a determination and tell us what we should do. And then we'll do that if we're immunized from liability from following, uh, following that direction. I like to call that an obscure, a centralized obscurity center. I think there are ideas like that that we should start talking about instead of just saying that this is completely unworkable. Uh, I, I believe that you know, if we continue to think that an environment where everything that you say, everything that other people say about you, Things that you do, where you have been is accessible by everyone, 
and accessible forever, I actually worry about what are the free expression implications of that? How much does that chill free expression? How much, when I talk to young people who are in college classes, they're concerned about taking confrontational or controversial opinions and ideas in class because of how that might be represented and what that might say about them later when they're trying to get a job. I really worry about what that means for a democratic we're, we're society. Trying, we're trying that experiment in this democratic society with the National Security Agency. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. apart from, you know, we don't quite so know you, what the results are. So you're arguing <laughs> for the NSA, yeah, then, I think, Mike, right? I, what I'm actually doing is saying that um, I think that what, we, what we've done in privacy law, and I'm not saying that, this, that the American model is necessarily the model that everyone needs to follow, but what we've done in uh, privacy law, and this is not about suppressing public information, but about suppressing information that is understood to be private uh, and that was wrongly published, uh, is that we've defined a set of wrongs that are civilly actionable by citizens uh, that have to do with things like misappropriating your face or your name or misrepresenting you even with a true statement uh, or publication of embarrassing private photos or facts. We have these torts defined under American law. So if you say that this is the substantive thing that we're trying to fix and you have a body of law that really precisely defines the interest, then I think the procedures get really easy for uh, search engines, actually for anybody, even Wikipedia, my former employer, to try to implement. I think the difficulty uh, in the d- European uh, directive, and what and what I and I think it will be a continuing difficulty in the next uh, directive, is that uh, they're using language like relevant. You know, no. No two of us necessarily agrees in this room about what's relevant. And what might be relevant in a query about one person might not be relevant in a query about another person. So it's very subjective. And because of that, because the rule of law requires uh, predictability, uh, clear understanding of what the results should be, clear understanding of what the obligations are, then the issue has to be how do we make get that clarity? And I don't think the European directive is going to get us there. And I don't think procedural uh, agreements among the search engines or among service providers or social media is going to get us there either. I think we have to agree what the substantive offenses are that we're trying to stop. And we haven't got that agreement yet. One interesting case that's been playing out in the U.S. involves what's called mugshot sites. Arrest records are public data in most cases, so these sites index them, and then you can search, see who's there. You get to see their mugshot with the nice numbers behind them and charge you to have your results removed, except it never actually works. And so uh, a really good site called Search Engine Land started covering this a while back, basically trying to shame Google into doing something about it. And Google eventually decided, you know, yes, this actually violates our webmaster guidelines, we don't highly value sites that scrape copy content at no actual value, and so they got the sort of death penalty of getting, hopefully, kicked off the first page of search results. And that's a case of Google on its own changing how its search algorithms work to punish abuse. There were no laws involved. You could say, should there be some? I mean, this is commercial reuse of public data, not to enlighten the public, to rip off people who may have you know, it's not a fact that not a surprise that sometimes people are wrongly arrested. Well, and I think the the mugshots database example is one of the the best examples of looking at how what difficult kind of societal and policy implications we're talking about here with information being accessible online. Because I remember reading, I think it was a, a New York Times article about mugshot databases, and sort of the conclusion of the article was then this reporter called up Google and let them know things were happening, and suddenly the results were off of the front page. I was like, okay, well, that's one way to go about getting information suppressed, and it seems like a generally pretty good thing in this case, but also that's a bit terrifying, <laughs> um, that it's, you know, that that is a, a way that this informa- information can get manipulated out of search results without having the broader public conversation about, you know, should mugshot databases be online? There are great open government and access to information about policing and communities, reasons that we do want to have um, the ability to see, you know, who is getting arrested, what, you know, what's happening in a particular locality, how, um, who, who ends up having a mugshot taken of them. Uh, but then there are also the obvious privacy interests and the potential for, you know, a, a mugshot for a crime that somebody was never even charged with.
with um, could really impact a person's ability to get a job, to, you know, otherwise participate in public life. So these are really difficult questions that I don't think we generally have come to a conclusion about. And rather than go at the intermediary that seems like the easiest place to just kind of stick a Band-Aid on the problem and move along, um, rather than saying, like, okay, well, just, you know, make the search, re- search engine change results, and, and that'll sort of fix the problem. I don't think it actually addresses the, the fundamental tension. I, I completely agree with Emma on this, and I, I think what, one of the things we can note from this is, once again, the court didn't create this new right here. It interpreted the existing law, and Google has been working to try to comply with that law for a long time, as Rob notes. They've been doing these processes. What this does now is it brings it out that the, diff- the search engines and data brokers are all trying to figure this out, and they're incredibly important uh, issues for discussion about what information are people going to be able to get access to and what gets obscured as these tools become the way we largely get information in the way we use technology now. So I I completely agree. What we need to do is break this down. Instead of saying, hey, there's a court that's created a new right to be forgotten, we have to say, look, there's some really important issues around privacy and free expression. We need to have some detailed conversation about how we want to make these decisions optimized for both values in society. I think, I think one of the things that maybe most or all of us agree on is that uh, these processes, when they're implemented by Google or anyone else, need to be really, really transparent. We need to be just as transparent in how Google is responding to right-to-be-forgotten demands as they are in responding to, as they can be under law, uh, as they would like to be, with regard to responding to search warrants or, or regarding to subpoenas for, inf- for user information. Uh, we, th- we think that uh, uh, the search engines have increasingly uh, been setting standards of very positive uh, behavior, of trying to disclose the fact that governments are demanding certain things of them, including, uh, you know, their home governments. That's awesome. That's very, very useful just to know. Uh, one of the things that we've seen, though, certainly in the debate about the right to be forgotten, is uh, some European regulators say it's so unfair uh, that Google is disclosing the fact that this, uh, that, you know, that links are being blocked. And they're, and they're increasingly, and I just read an article this morning that my former uh, employer, Wikipedia, is being criticized for disclosing that it was responsive to demands to have uh, links removed. Uh, and I think that's, uh, I think that transparency is the only way to make sure that whatever policy we build around uh, 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 the right to be forgotten or privacy interests or any related interests, those processes have to be maximally transparent because if we don't do that, the culture that we live in is one in which stuff is forgotten. And we don't know why and we don't know when, but we just know it disappeared if we know that. And I would like to come away from this panel standing for, you know, the right to remember. So I think, actually, I think that's a like a good call for organizations and regulators and policymakers to start putting together more guidance and guidelines. Um, Google, as I said earlier, is basically trying to muddle through this decision, um, and I think they, they need a lot of help. And I, I think, again, it would behoove us to start doing that on over here in the United States as well, not just to comply with European law, but also to sort of offer you know American consumers and American users um, more insight into what's going on. Um, I, I think I, I don't want to start lumping in other terms, and we've, data brokers have come up in the conversation, and obviously we start getting things like big data, but there really is a need for more transparency. Um, I think this case really sort of shows how the individual EU citizen, and I think in some respects American citizens, individual citizens don't know what is going on here. They don't understand the inner workings of how, these, how the Internet works, how these search engines are getting their data, how all of this information that we is pu- that is public about us, how it, and where it gets onto the Internet. Um, and we and organizations of business need to do a much better job of being transparent across the board as to what is going on. So let's, let's look forward a little bit um, from, you know, um, just building on this conversation. Um, uh, we've talked about difficulties with implementation, and um, I think we're all agreed that the, um, the standards in Europe could be more clear. Um, and easier to made more um, uh, easy to implement. Um, so going forward, are are we better off if Europe uh, um, actually specifies the right to be forgotten within their proposed data um, protection regulation um, and sort of takes what the 
the European Court of Justice did and, and make it a little more specific um, so we have more specific standards? And then also, um, how do you see this um, playing out, this uh, similar debate playing out in the United States? Um, we just had a, um, a, a really huge debate over SOPA and PIPA. Um, and sort of the, the free speech implications of that. And I, I think a lot of people take lessons from that about where the U.S. comes down on the, on the issue of um, free speech on the Internet. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, this is, you know, there's this unpleasant reality that the Internet is a global medium. Google has chosen to implement this only on country-specific sites, google.fr, google.de, and so on, where they say I think all but 5% of the search traffic occurs in the EU. But if you go to google.com in France or Germany or wherever, you get the, the unfiltered results. Suppose the EU decides they don't like that. Do they then say, well, you can show those results to people outside the EU, but geo-block them there, while proxy services exist in the EU as well, and suddenly you have the SOPA-esque regime to stop people from being embarrassed, which seems a bit excessive to me. Um, yeah, this really strikes me as the EU's equivalent of ARIO. A court took an older law, didn't quite know how to fit it, kind of invented to me the sweeping new right and said, we know this could be exploited or abused, but we'll sure it'll all be figured out in practice. Okay. Can I just respond to the Wikipedia-specific stuff since that's very close to my heart? Uh, you know, one of the things that one of my favorite, uh, uh, although it was a tense moment uh, in some ways, but one of my favorite uh, 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 cases when I was a general counsel for Wikipedia was this, which is that uh, uh, two convicted German murderers who'd served their times, uh, who served their time for, for having killed a, a German television star, uh, they were eventually uh, served their time and got out on good behavior. And they just, but it, it, they were convicted in '93 and they were released in 2008. And what happened between 1993 and 2008 was search engines happened. And so it turns out that even though the G German system is theoretically quite humane in allowing uh, 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 ex-cons to reintegrate into society. Actually, they're much better at it than we are. The fact is that any employer who was doing a search on the Internet about these guys discovered that they were convicted murderers. Uh, and my uh, solution to this, since uh, Wikipedia doesn't have anything like uh, the legal resources uh, that a Google or a Bing or a Yahoo has, was this. I... I, I I ignored it for as long as I could. When I got the letters nice. from the, I just said, "Well, you know, what will happen is the German lawyers will go get a, get a, you know, get a, a judgment against us in Germany, and then they'll try to enforce it in the United States, and then I'll come back and win in a federal court." That was my first answer. But 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 my second answer was this: they were so annoying that I just said, "You know, I'm just going to give this story to the New York Times," which I did. And then the New York Times actually went and interviewed the German lawyers and. Uh, and publish their names. And I said, well, this is okay, you know, because at least now uh, I've at least demonstrated that uh, this story is of public interest, that it is a public interest issue when people try to erase the history of their murders. Go figure. Um, and so, uh, and then I realized also that instead of suing Wikipedia, they'd have to sue the New York Times first because it was, had a bigger audience, you know, or at least potentially as big an audience for this story, at least, as Wikipedia did. But having, and, and New York Times has very good lawyers, by the way. They're really good. And so, so I was very comfortable with that. Then I'm looking at this uh, European Court of Justice decision that says, oh, we'll exempt newspapers for reasons that don't entirely make sense, but we're going to go after search engines. And what is Wikipedia more like? Well, it's not like... Uh, an artistic or literary site, which the court references, and it's not like uh, scientific research or, his, you know, historical site. It's basically, it's an encyclopedia hobby, you know, that people have created that turns out to be generally useful. And I realized that my solution wouldn't work anymore. So the thing is, if you really care about Wikipedia, and I know pretty much everybody in this room has on a Wikipedia page sometime pretty much every day. If you care about that stuff, you're upset at the fact that something might take Wikipedia away. Or something might make Wikipedia, uh, you know, have holes in its history. So once again, if you believe with me that there is a right to remember, uh, you are troubled by this, and you don't want to have to be re to resort to uh, SOPA or PIPA-like blackout of Wikipedia to try to make the point. What you'd really like to do is have uh, some general public policy insight throughout Europe, throughout the developed world, and the rest of the world as well 
that the Internet is not sort of territorial. It's not that geographic. It's this, it's something else. And we're going to have to live in a world in which a lot of data is searchable and a lot of individual citizens have a right not only to express themselves, but to seek and to impart data according to the international human rights instruments. So I, I, I agree with Mike. I, I think this is the kind of conversation that we need to have. The first thing to answer your question, Michael, that I would ask the Europeans to do is let's get rid of the phrase the right to be forgotten. It's completely unhelpful. It's actually not what the language, even the current revisions of the regulation actually do. There was originally this concept that individual uh, posters on the Internet would have to go back to wherever they got the information from, and that would have to be taken off of there, which actually would really get to forgetting. We're really talking more about some limited rights around access and deletion and obscuring the data and making it harder to get. Those, those limited rights have profound implications, but I do believe that the, the language, the right to be forgotten, has misled a lot of people about what we're talking about. And then I would say we've done things like this before as far as implementation goes. We have taken flexible, vague standards that are important for protecting individuals and then defined guidelines and case law underneath that. Here in the U.S., the primary mechanism for protecting privacy is Section 5 of the FTC Act, which protects against unfair and deceptive trade practices. Well, what's an unfair and deceptive trade practice? How could we ever figure that out? It's completely subjective. We'll never determine it. But actually, I think a lot of people say, and there's a lot of legal scholars that are saying, we've now developed... In, in a sense, a common law of privacy under those Section 5 cases that give guidance along with uh, work that the FTC has done, like the data broker report, to provide their opinions of how they would come out on particular issues. We need to start having that conversation with the Europeans about how would we interpret these kinds of standards. So, David, I just have a quick like question. So I, the problem is the right to be forgotten is really catchy. It's easy to understand. In understand in some sense of the word, and so are things like eraser buttons. So, I, I mean, I think one of the problems is we need, like, a good PR term. So I don't know if you have any ideas, but I, I think we need a PR term to express a concept that people are worried about. I think that's Rob's business, not mine. <laughs> I, I don't do PR. I was going to mention the right to reply was briefly mentioned as if this is something that we need to invent. It already exists. A lot of this discussion assumes that the people who show up in Google search results have no agency of their own, no ability to post their own information online. Um, I, I, has someone talked to Mr. Costea and asked, you know, did you ever think of maybe putting up a blog post saying, hey, me and the Barcelona tax authorities, we're good. It's paid off. Um, you have the right to reply. Now, there is a problem if when your attempt to correct the record goes ignored by search engines or maybe one search engine. That or maybe it makes things worse. Right. <laughs> yes, lots of people don't know how to argue online. Someone, <laughs> someone made up a law about I'm, that at some did, point, I, I think. Know, right? um, you know, that's a competitiveness issue that hopefully the, the bad search engine will get punished for in the market. But, you know, we need no court ruling or, or new legal doctrine to establish your right to say something online to say that somebody else is wrong on the Internet. Uh, Gonzalez actually argued when he sued, and he sued in court in, in Spain, or he sued in the, in the privacy regime in Spain, uh, and he wanted the records uh, of his forced sale and bankruptcy. And so this is Mr. Costea, C-O-S-T-E-J-A, G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S, Gonzalez, and it was a, Mario it was a forced, first name Mario. forced sale. You look it up. Anyway, the... the he, what he did was he wanted the record removed from a Spanish newspaper, as, and, and then he wanted secondarily Google uh, USA and Google Spain uh, to remove any links. But so he understood; he at least had clarity about he wanted. He didn't want it just to be harder to get to. He wanted it gone. And at least I think it, it, it argues for the coherency of his intellectual position that he asked for everything a reasonable person would want under the circumstances, uh, and the court didn't give it to him. The ECJ, in interpreting the decision, didn't give him the conclusion that he was asking for from them in interpreting the European directive. And I think, uh, I think that while he's probably rejoicing in his newfound popularity as beater of Google in the European Union, uh, he's nevertheless didn't, you know, ha would have to admit that he wanted more than what he got. And 
And uh, it's very, very difficult to be intellectually consistent about the results for Google as against the results for the Spanish newspaper. I just wanted to um, pick up on a, a point that David made about the, the FTC interpreting um, unfair and deceptive, and what does that mean, um, and how they've, you know, they've managed to put some some real meat on on those bones, however vague those bones may have been. Um, <laughs> To me, this really points to the need for the data protection authorities in Europe to, as soon as they can, provide much better guidance than search engines currently have for how to implement this. Um, you know, we hear, we see that Google is putting together an advisory council. They're asking for public comment. They're kind of recreating federal rulemaking procedure because they have this obligation that they um, they need to comply with. And, you know, that's I think that's their, their best effort to figure out how to balance these privacy and free expression rights um, that are at stake. But that is not the job for a private company to be doing. That is something, that is the responsibility of government. Um, it's, you know, there was not enough guidance in the ECJ opinion. Uh, and so it's really now on the data protection authorities to provide guidelines, not just for, um, for the Googles and the Bings and the Yahoos of the world who have, you know, Mike kept mentioning all of the different great lawyers at all of these different major companies. Um, and it's great that they have them and that they're working hard to figure out what to do here. But a smaller company that doesn't immediately, you know, that starts out with a, a couple of engineers and doesn't immediately think we need to have a regulatory affairs lawyer brought on staff, um, they're going to have such a difficult time trying to figure out how to operate in Europe. Um, and the responses can either be, you know, just don't even go into the market or respond to every request they get without evaluating it because it's so cumbersome to try to figure out how to implement this um, without any guidance. So I think it's really on the data protection authorities now um, to figure out what is this careful balancing of public interest, you know, what are the scope of these different terms, um, just – very, very briefly, I just, can I just add one point to what she said? The example I think of is a really popular blogger like Andrew Sullivan or Talking Points Memo or something else. Really popular blog. There's a big comments area, and there's a request to take something down based on something in the comments area. It's just easier to take it down. They don't have the capacity to do anything else. And, and I, I think Emma's point is a fantastic one, and, and I think it's actually worse than what Emma says because I, I think it calls out how something needs to be done about the system in Europe with the directive. They've been trying to do that with the regulation. But what we haven't talked about is the system right now is that the directive sets a floor, not a ceiling, for how the individual member states protect the data. They have to implement that directive in their own law, and they can go above and beyond, and they can interpret their own implementations in their own way. So what you now have is a system where there's 28 authorities who can come up with their own interpretation of how you would implement this. Now, the draft regulation, it's been a top priority for lots of organizations to say, look, that this is not tenable for a, a global corporation to figure out how to comply with a situation like this. We need robust, predictable, and harmonized standards and enforcement. The, the re draft regulation actually has made attempts to do that. We need more conversation about how we get there. Uh, with that, I, I, sorry to cut you off, Joe, but uh, we're uh, coming down to the end of our hour, and I wanted to leave a little time for audience questions. Um, so uh, if you could just raise your hand if you have any questions, and uh, someone will come around with the mic. Okay. <laughs> sorry, I wrote points. It's easier. I'm Carrie Dever from the Center for Copyright Integrity, um, and I've written these notes over a few times. There's nothing to figure out. The conversation is greater, and it's global. It's theft of IP and ID. They are stealing it at a cost um, of commerce to people. People's names and identities are their brands. Um, this should not be a conversation, period. It all starts with, please, may I. All search engines need to pull back. They need to pay for all content they've used without permission. People have always been able to remove data. It's just been that um, easy. I'm sorry. Uh, we're a little short on time, so if there's a sure. question. <laughs> uh, and to, to bring it to a close, the words no. You need to have all these search engines ask people permission. They built models. Bill Gates said that people are to be paid for content. I'm a brand. You're a brand. He's a brand. Okay. Uh, does anyone else have a question? This question is a little, um, it, it deviates a little from the conversation that we've had, but it's still very much within this space. Um, what do you think the impact that this will have and that this discussion will have on 
the research community. So not people who are looking to use um, data and information for advertising and sales and marketing, but if a researcher, let's say, wanted to use um, the, you know, the a web page that posted um, mugshots as a research tool, um, and they wanted to scrape that data in order to publish ultimately in a scholarly journal, um, what impact do, do these privacy regulations ultimately have on um, kind of scholarly research abilities? I could just say very briefly, uh, the research, research as, a, as a thing that people do is not at all privileged. Uh, it's not called out by the regulation as it stands. Uh, the, the specific calls out are journalism and literary and artistic expression. Uh, so if you're so that so research as such, and I, I agree that there is a role for that, um, it's just not called out. There's no question this has an impact on researchers. The the analogy I think that's been used quite a bit is it's like torching the card catalog at a library. Obviously, that's a pre-digital metaphor, but you know the books are still all going to be there. It's just going to be very hard to find them. The regulation actually the, uh, the regulation actually applies to card catalogs by its own terms. And this, it's funny that you wanted to protect journal journalism in terms of not making newspapers take down stories, but also make journalists' jobs harder by impeding the process of researching someone by name. We have, we have a questioner over here. Uh, I think what Emma basically described is attacks on the public domain in terms of large and small entities trying to comply. My question is, doesn't the idea of handing this off to either an officially recognized consortium of all of the search engines with antitrust immunity or to an official body subject potentially to political control make one's skin crawl? Uh, I'll just uh, – so uh, I think it could make one's skin crawl. It would depend upon what level of transparency there is and what level of oversight and public oversight there is of a body like that. I think the question is, is your skin not already crawling that a whole bunch of organizations are making these decisions already in a non-transparent way? So I, I, I think that's a huge question. People if there's a private consortium, I think you'd have to have, number one, high, con high super transparency, and number two, very low barriers to entry, so that anyone who thinks of what the next Google or Wikipedia looks like can just join at a nominal price and participate in the standard setting. And the answer to your question is yes. Yeah, and, and I would tell <laughs> And on a better response to Joe's question to me earlier, I would say, you know, instead of right to be forgotten, maybe we could talk about this as obscure, obscure access for obscurity purposes. We have uh, time for maybe one or two more questions. Hi. Um, so one of the points that's been made is that the Internet uh, in and of itself isn't territory or perhaps shouldn't be. But it's very clear that there is a different understanding of privacy in the EU as opposed to the U.S. It's enshrined in their basic treaties. It's a basic building block as opposed to the U.S. where it's, it's more difficult, let's put it that way. Um, and I understand that there's an interest in getting the EU to go one way on the data protective directives. However, coming from the EU and having experienced the debate from within the EU, that is most likely not going to happen. So if that's not possible and all these companies will just have to deal with the fact that they're dealing with 28 different directives, what would be sort of the practical um, guidelines or tools that you would suggest they start using? Okay, let me just answer that very as briefly as I can. In the, in the, in the EU, uh, uh, one of the things that I found very heartening in developments in the EU is now we're recognizing that the longstanding uh, data retention requirements are now being recognized as violative of uh, fundamental human rights. So, so this is a case whereas in the United States we haven't had data retention as a requirement, and now of course we're and now you know we're pushing for it. Some people are pushing for it. But when you analyze this, I think one of the things that you have to say is the U.S. has tried to carve out some places of consensus where there are clear understandings of what the privacy interests are. Uh, and so, you know, even if it's something as small as video rental records, which we have a separate law for, as, as maybe you know. Uh, but, but, but I think that it, it, there's some place in the middle that, you know, doesn't, that doesn't have a sort of de regis notion of 
data retention for eventual possible police purposes uh, and also doesn't have the spotty, uh, inconsistent coverage of uh, capturing a private information uh, that is possible under the U.S. system. And I think we're going to have to have a, a multinational dialogue about it. I think it's part of – it's one of the reasons that uh, some of us uh, – are looking at Internet governance models and trying to think hard about them and trying especially to have multi-stakeholder models to make sure that it's not just governments advancing government interests, but everybody advancing every stakeholder interest. And I think that as we see some kind of convergence or Internet governance in the next decade, I hope, we'll begin to see some of these particular issues emerge and some international consensus on them. So just real quickly on that, I would say, you know, in the absence of a one-stop-shop model happening within the regulation, what we have is the Article 29 Working Party being able to come together. What I would recommend, there are think tanks like the Future of Privacy Forum that do a phenomenal job of generating a multi-stakeholder dialogue to make recommendations for practical privacy guidelines in situations like this. Let's do that. Let's have that dialogue. Let's bring that to the Article 29 Working Party. Let them do their job of providing opinions on how to implement the existing requirements in the directive. Okay. On that note, uh, we are out of time now, and I'm sorry we're going to have to uh, cut off um, any further questions. Um, but I'd like to thank everyone for attending uh, um, in the middle of August recess. This is fantastic. Um, and I'd like to thank all of our panelists. The, um, both the audio um, uh, podcast and the video from this will be on the um, Internet Caucus website, uh, Internet Caucus Advisory Committee website at netcaucus.org, as well as the video will be on C-SPAN. Uh, thank you once again for attending.